Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. Just with what you do, I mean, it's very dangerous. You know, I'm most known for free soloing, and so, you know, I'm sure that's what you're referring to as, as you know, incredibly dangerous. And, uh, and you know, that's, that's probably a fair characterization. This podcast exists because I love talking to people, and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability, and what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home, and this show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick, and I'm pretty intense. Today on the Pretty Intense podcast, I have Alex Honnold. He is famous for the documentary Free Solo. He free soloed El Capitan and blew all of our minds. I saw it years ago and thought this guy's crazy. What you'll find in the interview is that he's not that crazy. He's actually really calculated. He's really calm and I'm sure that's what helps him make good decisions so that he doesn't fall off of these uh rock faces. He's passionate about climate change. We talk about that a ton. He has a, a virtual reality film on Oculus that you can check out. Uh, and he also has a new National Geographic TV series called On the Edge. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to see what he does next. If you like this podcast and you're interested in seeing more of them and you want notifications, make sure you click on the subscribe button so that you are aware of when the next awesome interview is out. Are you, you're, you live in Vegas, I think, or something? Yeah, yeah, I live in Las Vegas. I'm I'm here at home and uh I've been here for the whole holiday season. Basically, I've been here for months because uh, my wife is pregnant and due in uh 5 weeks now. Holy So moment. uh yeah, so we're getting close to the end. Oh my gosh, how does she how does she feel? How do you feel? <laughs> I feel I would say I'm starting to feel slightly more apprehensive. And she <laughs> is uh she is definitely starting to feel quite pregnant, I think. <laughs> she's uh, she's peaking. <laughs> I I feel like it's something like a pound a week at the end, the last like yeah, exactly. month exactly. or so. So she's yeah. probably in that. She's she's fully in it. Actually, uh, the more interesting thing that she learned from one of her little pregnancy apps is that she's supposed to be gaining a finger's width of uh, of girth each week. So she's gaining a finger each each week, which is uh, starting to be noticeable. <laughs> she she seems very pregnant. It's kind of fascinating what the human body goes through. I mean, watching yes. a woman's body, it's like your skin can do that. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it feels like it's pushing the limits of what what skin should do. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. When did you guys get married? Uh, we got married last year. We've been together six years. Yeah, I remember watching the doc years ago, and you guys were obviously just dating at that point in time, mm -hmm. and then she made you fall off of a side of a side of a climbing face. How, how would I say that? A rock face? A rock? Uh, well, she, she accidentally dropped me while while lowering me off the thing. It's, <laughs> it's sort of complicated and it was kind of my own fault. But uh, but yeah, basically she, she just dropped me like 10 feet. So kids, like this is a big decision in general. But then when you package that big decision in with what you do, it's like, I, 
I feel like it's so loaded. Did that even play into the decision or just with what you do? I mean, it's very dangerous. Well, it's, it's complicated. I mean, it's, uh, it's not, I mean, being a professional climber isn't fundamentally that dangerous. And within climbing, there are tons of different, different aspects to climbing. You know, I'm most known for free soloing. And so, you know, I'm sure that's what you're referring to as, as, you know, incredibly dangerous. And, uh, and, you know, that's, that's probably a fair characterization. But the thing is, I'd, I'd probably be a professional climber either way, even without the free soloing, you know, just based on all the other things that I like to climb and, and ways that I climb and expeditions that I go on, you know, other things that I contribute to climbing. And so, you know, I don't know, we'll see, basically. Um, in the last year, I've actually did quite a few solos that, that I was pretty proud of. Um, but I haven't quite had any hunger for it with the, with the baby coming. But part of that is just because, uh, because there's a baby coming, I've been focusing on certain things closer to home and, and they just aren't soloing projects. I don't know. It's just, it's just complicated. You know, it's like where do motivations come from? What really impacts them? You know, it's hard to, hard to know for sure. Well, what's the motivation right now then? With, with goal setting, you know, I often set my goals around what's available, like what's what I'll have the opportunity to actually try because you don't want to set goals that are totally unrealistic because if you know that you won't be able to go on a trip to that place or actually try that specific climb there's no point in setting it as a goal if you're never going to get to go there and so you know with the with our daughter coming in a month all of my goals right now are focused around things that are accessible at home like basically realistic goals that I can work on at home and so those are all sort of like training goals and fitness goals and things that that uh that align well with with having a kid so those types of goals are are fundamentally not dangerous you know it's all like in the closet next to me like you know six feet away from me is a different closet and uh, i have a hangboard and like some some training tools set up in that closet so i can like work out at home with weights and things like by dangling off little edges and so i mean there's literally nothing safer than doing workouts in your own closet <laughs> you right, know so, not a far fall yeah exactly and so those are the types of goals that i'm working on with with the kid on the way and so the thing is, though, that then you eventually I'll take that fitness, I'll take that climbing ability and, and hopefully use it for more interesting things outdoors. But until we have a sense of what having a daughter is like, you know, it's hard to make those plans because I just don't know what will be available, you know, what the opportunities are. Sure. You said that if you weren't free soloing, because that's the big thing that you're known for, because, yes, it's absolutely freaking frightening. Um, and most people can't wrap their head around any of it whatsoever no people wouldn't even climb on top of their roof without a ladder so you know you're you have to understand the perspective here um but uh what uh what do you feel like your next i mean like what's the next thing if you were going to use this fitness what would that next thing be i don't know that that's hard to say because with free soloing you know it's hard to imagine anything much bigger than than free soloing i'll cap which is what i'm sort of most known for with the film free solo um you know, there are plenty of other interesting challenges out there. I mean, uh, earlier this year, I did this this link up like a combination of three sort of famous routes uh, near my home in, in Red Rock in Las Vegas. Um, you know, so there are always interesting challenges that you can make for yourself like that by combining classic routes and, and doing, you know, things that are new for you or that are challenging. But no matter what I come up with like that, it's not going to match the the grandeur of, of El Cap, sure. let's say. Sure. And so... So I, I don't know. I mean, but that's kind of the the interesting thing about being a professional climber is that there's a there's a 
big creative process to it. You constantly have to come up with interesting goals, come up with with challenges, you know, think up what's inspiring, like what, you know, what, what gets you out of bed. I mean, there, there's no there's no playbook for it. You know, there are no rules for it. You just you just have to figure out what what seems, you know, appropriately exciting, which is skewed for you. Um, so yeah, what exactly. uh, <laughs> what um, what would you do? You, you were saying, like, if you didn't if you weren't free soloing, you would still be climbing and you'd still be doing all these things. How do you make money climbing and what kind of ways to create revenue stream and make a living out of it? Would you be able to do if you didn't sort of have the movie come out and and all of the things that come around it? And then, of course, like I know this world well, when you get known for something then you get sponsors and all these things. Mm-hmm. Is that all still happening on a smaller scale if you were doing that? Or is it more like private expeditions or, you know, what would you, what would the, what would the business of climbing look like if you took like free solo out of the equation and doing things crazy like that, that you're getting so much attention for? Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's probably fairly similar to the racing world in that the, or really any professional sports where it's like there's you know so you can make money for through competitions and just direct earnings and things like that though i personally don't do competitions you know like uh, climbing was in the olympics for the first time this summer yeah. and so the the climbers that competed in the olympics they almost certainly have incentives and things like that from their various sponsors where like if they podium they make more money things like that mm-hmm. um so some climbers make money directly through competitions mm-hmm. um i don't i historically made most of my money through sponsorship through like brand partnerships with um you know climbing specific companies and apparel companies like i'm sponsored by the north face they're um typically climbers make the most money from their apparel sponsor because apparel is just like a bigger category than than climbing hardware um you know as you can imagine because you see tons of jackets out there in the mainstream world but you don't see that many people walking down the street with like climbing hardware strapped like climbing in equipment <laughs> yeah exactly like their harness on where they yeah. get it and then beyond that, many professional climbers make money through sort of odds and ends stuff like writing things and like appearing in little films and, you know, just like random extra, I don't know, like promotional things and whatever, uh, you know, teaching clinics, like guiding, you know, yeah. all kinds of like various side things. And then for me personally, since the film Free Solo, uh, my corporate speaking has become much or just kind of public speaking in general has become a bigger part of everything. Um and even just like movie royalties or like commercial, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. But so I think if if it weren't for the film Free Solo, it just would be the same, but everything toned down a little bit. You know, it's like it would be the the same buckets, like the same possibilities, but just all like turned down to seven instead of 11, let's say. Yeah. You know. Well, the last time I I saw you was at a speaking engagement. So um, I had a couple booked for next week and all this outbreak stuff is happening. I'm like, damn it. Do you like the speaking engagements? I personally do. Yeah, I mean, I find it incredibly varied. The thing, I feel like I learn something interesting at every event because they're always in, I don't know, they're always somewhere new with interesting people, smart people, and, you know, industries that I don't necessarily understand that well. And so, like, I did a remote speaking thing recently for um, for uh, some cryptocurrency 
stuff and like i don't i personally don't know much about crypto and i was like oh it's actually a pretty good way to learn quite a bit in a fairly short amount of time so i was like that's you know that's fun that's cool yeah 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 i i find them i actually really have fun with them i think that they're great maybe it's because in the podcast I ask questions and I try and shut up as best as possible. And when I do speaking engagements, I have an opportunity to talk. And so I'm like, I'm also really like doing that. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I know. I mean, re realistically, when it's like someone is paying you money to talk about yourself, you're like, is there an easier gig in the world? You're like, it's pretty, it's pretty chill. It's Especially pretty to, like, cake. to just tell stories about the stuff that you love most in the world anyway. You know, like I could talk about climbing with my friends all day long because I love climbing. And I'm like, wait, if a stranger is willing to pay me to talk about climbing, I'm like, well, that sounds pretty chill. It's like, that's, that's what I do all day anyway. It's so fun. I mean, it does. It, it, it's like, I think about that too. And I think about, you know, the business of speaking engagements and just sitting there for for an hour and chatting about your life. And I'm like, wow, this is like stealing candy from a baby. Yeah, um, exactly. But on the other hand, like you had to live the life that you had to get that gig. You know, I, I had to go live the life I had to get that gig. You know, we had to go spend decades. We had to go risk our lives um, to be able to speak from that place. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for sure, I think about how easy it is, but um, the reason that you're there is because of all the things that you've done. So I think I heard you've climbed on all seven continents. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I like to say I've put up new routes on all seven continents. Oh, wow. That's beyond it. Um, okay. Well, so I'm most fascinated with Antarctica. Is there yep. anything you want to tell me? Are there aliens down there? Are there tunnels going inside of stuff that you're like, hey, what's that? And they're like, whoops. And they make you, you know, look the other way. I mean, is there anything well, crazy so going on down there? Well, so for context, we were climbing in an area called Queen Maudland, which is uh, south of Cape Town. So, I mean, most people, when they talk about going to Antarctica, they go from the tip of South America. We yeah. went from the tip of Africa. Uh -huh. um, and so we were on sort of the other side of Antarctica. And then we were in an area that's like quite a ways inland, uh, so away from the coast. And so there were actually basically no living things the whole trip because you're just like you're in a vast expanse of actually other interesting, fun Antarctica fact is that uh where we were at least, and I think most of the continent is actually a desert because there's no precipitation. I mean, it's it's ice. It's all ice and snow. Oh. But there's so little precipitation because the temperature is so low that there's no humidity. Um, like, basically, there's no precipitation. Like, it never rains because it's too cold for that. <laughs> and so, and and it's not like it's not like it's snowing. Like, there are no storms because it's basically too cold for the, the air to hold humidity. Okay. And so, um, so anyway, it's kind of this interesting, like, you know, alien world because there's, there are no living things. There's no climate, you know, I mean, there's heinous wind and like, it's very cold, but, uh, but yeah, I was like, it's pretty, pretty wild. I mean, where we were, there were these birds, uh, snow petrels that come in from the coast to, to hatch their, their young because they're no predators. So it's like a safe space for them to come and, and have their kids. And, uh, so for the month that we were there, all we saw were snow petrels from time to time. It's like one species of bird. That's it. And then late in the trip, I found something that I thought might've been lichen on, on one of the rock walls. And I was like, Oh my God, it's a living thing. But I, I have no idea if it actually was, you know, it could have just been some like weird rock thing. But, uh, but I was like, this is, it's, it's a pretty barren landscape. It's just rock and ice. Well, I think those were probably baby dragons. And <laughs> the living things were underneath the ice sheet, not above it. Um, no, you I have love to go that. really deep. It's crazy because the ice sheet is so thick there. I mean, we were at something like 7,000 feet and technically, you know, the ice goes all the way down to sea level roughly. So it's like thousands of feet of ice. 
where do you climb then? I mean, if it's just a sheet of ice, like where no, do you No, it's a sheet climb? of ice with, with like, actually, since you're into dragons, it's like dragon's teeth, like these crazy spires of rock sticking out of the ice. So these like uh, up to two or 3,000 foot granite faces. Like imagine Yosemite, but still with thousands of feet of ice below it. And and the the rock was much worse, but but so it's like rock, jagged. not ice. Yeah, so it's like jagged granite walls sticking out of. Actually, uh, I I was like, do I have a picture of it in my in my? Uh, you know, I've got some pictures around the uh, the office here. Your newly decorated office. Closet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but no, I mean, uh, just think like mountaintops sticking out of a glacier. So it's like wow. everything is a flat sheet of ice except for these like teeth sticking out every once in a while. I bet that looks the, so crazy. It's crazy. It's it's an insane landscape. And uh, I mean, the specific area that we were climbing in is called, uh, in Nor it's like Norwegian. It's historically Norwegian. Um, but it's called the Wolf's Jaw because it looks like it's a big U-shaped uh, sort of valley. And it's like uh -huh. all, it looks like a jagged jawline. You know, it's all the teeth of a wolf. So cool. Or dragon. Yeah, except they're 2,000 feet Dragon tall. or a wolf, whatever. Yeah, yeah um, whatever. <laughs> does raw, does granite get... I mean, is there a texture difference between when it's 75 degrees versus that kind of granite where it's freezing? It's not so much because of the temperature, but uh, there's definitely a texture difference based on what has happened to the granite over time. So like Yosemite is incredibly nice granite because Yosemite was glaciated in the past and now the glaciers have retreated. Mm -hmm. And so as the glaciers scoured down the valley and then retreated, uh, it like buffed the side, you know, imagine like a countertop getting buffed. Sure. And so now the walls in Yosemite are like this beautiful, perfect, clean rock. But then you have somewhere like Antarctica, which hasn't had that kind of glacial advance and retreat. You know, it hasn't had that like scouring action of ice rubbing mm -hmm. over it. It's just been like sitting there sort of untouched for thousands of years. Uh, anyway, the rock in Antarctica, very bad. <laughs> it's like really, really grim. Like sandpaper? All, like just like jaggedy crumbly, rough? Like, uh, like crumbly kitty litter. Like if you imagine kitty litter like held together by like compaction. You that know, doesn't like sound safe, Alex. That does not sound safe. It it was not. Actually, we climbed, I climbed like 15 roots or something while I was there. Like basically I climbed every one of the teeth in the jaw except for one of them. And um, and toward the end as we were doing harder roots, we would climb a really hard route. And then I'd spend the whole next day in the in the cook tent just like spooning Nutella by myself all, all shell-shocked being like, oh, I don't want to have to go climbing again. And then the next day we'd be like, oh, man, and then we'd go and climb another thing. It's like there, it was pretty scary. So each one that we did, you'd be like, oh, God, it was kind of heinous. And then you spend the whole <laughs> next day just like sitting around being like, I don't want to have to go again. But then it's like you're in Antarctica. It's pretty hard to get there. And so you kind of have to make the most of the expedition and and, you know, climb as much as you can. So. Does sometimes situations like that lead to bad, like lead to bad places? Like, I feel like it, it's almost like feeling like this analogy of a pilot where, you know, or, or someone that's, you know, doing something dangerous and is, but especially pilots come to mind where you make one decision that's a compromise and then it kind of leads to another thing. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a really shitty spot. Like, yeah. No, does no, that the, happen the, to you? The, yeah. The cascade of errors. I mean, I have so yeah. many adventure tale actually a lot of adventures from like rest day hikes and things uh you know like where i'm adventuring in the mountains going for some hike and then through a series of, of sort of poor decisions you're like and then i wound up wading through a lake in the dark the rest of the way home because i you know like that actually that is a, an actual thing that happened um you know i didn't have a light and then it was dark and then i couldn't bushwhack along the this hillside and so i wound up getting into this lake and i wound up like wading the whole length of this like two mile long lake in the middle of the night because i like couldn't find my way back to my car you know shit like that where you're like you're like, how many bad decisions did I have to make to wind up wading through a lake through the night? You know, the, yeah, no, I have tons of things like that.
Have you ever but, had to climb a tree to get away from an animal or something like a bear? <laughs> no, that that I've never had to do. Any but, animal attacks whatsoever. Moose. Um, not elk, attacks, I don't think. No, I mean the opposite. Lions. I've had bear. I, I saw a mountain lion in real life just for the first time just this year, which was kind of exciting. For the um, first time? Yeah, mountain lions are so cagey. Like you never see them. Oh. I mean, I see their tracks all the time uh, in like snow and stuff around here, but you rarely actually see a mountain lion. And then I saw like kind of a juvenile, like a medium sized one. And I was like, it's still a, I was like, that's a mountain lion. <laughs> it was like pretty exciting. It's like, damn. Yeah, yeah. I, I have this secret obsession idea with like wanting to pet a mountain lion or uh, uh, even coyotes or I, I pet a cheetah at a at a game reserve thing in, in Namibia and uh, it was like a giant house cat it's like kind of intense still be a little careful though yeah well I didn't feel like you had to because it was it was tame i guess i don't know yeah. <laughs> but, i mean we were in a park and the woman is like pet the cheetahs it's totally chill and you're like if you say so i guess they're sedated yeah yeah exactly no it wasn't sedated it was crazy it, it like it would lick you and it's its tongue was like sandpaper like you know how a cat's kind of like that yeah. but when you have a giant cat it's like really like that. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i see those cat videos on instagram like when i'm looking at my search feed and there'll be some lion or tiger doing something awesome and i'm like that's my dream that's my dream just, to have a lion jump over on the couch and cuddle me. Well, you know, I feel like you could make that dream happen if you tried hard enough. Pro probably. I don't know if I'd live to tell about should, it. I don't think you should, though. Yeah. So I'm curious if, like, on these expeditions, there's any kind of spiritual aspect to it. Like, have you ever had any kind of different moments where you, there was a sense or a feeling or a you know, something that sort of transcended where you were at, or even just, you know, the experience itself teaching you things. I'm sure it teaches you things, but something yeah, in a more yeah. sort of like, you know, spiritual way. Yeah, not not so much. I mean, I, I'm an atheist. I've always been pretty overtly unspiritual. That said, I mean, being in some of the most beautiful natural locations on earth, I mean, you know, it's easy to experience feelings of grandeur and awe and, and I mean, just, I mean, that feeling of oneness with the world and things like that. I mean, a lot of those, those sorts of experiences are what people characterize as, as spiritual experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that's how, how John Muir historically wrote about Yosemite Valley, you know, as a cathedral and, uh, you know, he sort of wrote about it in spiritual terms. And I, you know, I've spent at this point, I don't know, something like three years of my life in Yosemite Valley. So, I mean, I've had tons of of experiences like that i just wouldn't necessarily characterize them as spiritual you know i'd just be like oh i've had very powerful moving experiences in yosemite um you know it makes me care about the natural world it makes me care about the environment you know it makes me love that specific place but you know i don't necessarily need to attribute that to a higher power sure sure yeah we could put it in a different title i mean everybody uses different words for yeah exactly. and the senses that comes over you whether it's spiritual or religious or just nature or just the world or just energy or whatever it is um are there i'm kind of curious what the most beautiful places you've been but also even you know you're talking about just places like yosemite <clears throat> are there places that you go that just have a different energy oh, i don't know i mean depends what i mean yeah, it depends what you mean by energy. So, um, actually, above me in the in the screen right there, I mean, you can see uh, that's uh, that's mm -hmm. Patagonia. That's like southern uh, southern. The top Argentina. picture or the bottom picture? The top one is Yosemite. The bottom one is Patagonia. Wow. Um, but Patagonia is kind of 
again like a more active version of yosemite it's like huge granite walls except it's still glaciated um though actually sadly the glaciers are retreating semi-quickly but uh from climate change not from like natural you know yosemite style like glaciers retreating over ten thousand years but a place like patagonia or or some of the climbing areas in alaska have a feeling like they have a power to them in that the landscape is like so grand and so alive like you hear avalanches nonstop, you hear glaciers moving you hear spontaneous rock fall nonstop. like as snow and ice is moving it like lets rocks loose like basically the landscape is constantly moving especially in alaska it's like you constantly hear avalanches off different sides of mountains and there's like ice falling and seracs falling down and like you know crevasses opening and closing like you know because glaciers are constantly moving mm. and so that whole landscape is alive and like you hear it moving and stuff is breaking and crashing and crumbling and and so there are definitely some alpine areas in the world that have that sense of power. I mean, like when you're camped on a glacier in Alaska, everything around you is like vast and powerful and can kill you. <laughs> and you're sort of like, oh, geez, you know, it makes you feel very insignificant because like while you're like laying in your tent reading, you're hearing avalanches like all around. And, and you know, if you were too close to any of them, you would die. And you're just like, this is this is a lot, you know, it's a, it's a lot. To, it, it reminds you how insignificant you are in the world. You're like, yeah, let's go into that. Cause that's what you're doing. I mean, you're headed. No, in. no, no, you're not. You climb the routes in between them. Like, you know, because you have some you're hugging the glacier, the glace glacial slide. No, no, no. Like huge granite walls. And then the gullies on either side of it, or like, you know, basically like, uh, if you think of a huge rock face, you know, there'll be natural like folds and, and weaknesses in it. And so snow will accumulate and slide down those, those like natural depressions. So as a climber, you try to climb the parts that stick out and that don't accumulate snow in that way. So a big part of, of being successful on an expedition is sort of choosing the right lines and making sure you're choosing something that's safe from objective hazards. You know, something where it's like, isn't going to be hit by avalanches, isn't going to have rocks falling down it. So it's nice to climb, uh, like a rets or like ridge lines, basically things that are kind of sticking out like a spine mm -hmm. of rock because there's nothing to fall on you. Mm. Does someone have to go clear the path to like, well, no, I mean, that's, that's you. If you're doing the first ascent, that's you. When I yeah. was on bear girls show, have this, have you been I, on his show? Yeah. Yeah. I have. I had a great, what job. the hell is yeah. he going to get you to do that? You've never yeah. done. No, for me, it was like an active rest day. It was totally lovely. We had a nice time. We, it was, it was super fun. Actually, he was, he was really chill about it. He basically let me sort of guide the whole thing. And he was like, we're just having a nice chat. It was really fun, but he did take me skydiving, which, which was kind of scary. Oh, great. That I did that too. But um, we, we did all height stuff for me, which was really fun. But, you know, when, at one point when we rappelled down a little rock face and I lean into the rope for the first time, I mean, I'm, yeah, it scared the shit out of me. Like, I'm like, oh, God, here what we go. And ended up realizing that was nothing compared to what I'd have to do later. But um, but he went down first so he could kick the rocks and get them out of the way and make sure that it didn't fall on the next person. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so, uh, but yeah, we did jump up. We had, I had to rappel across a canyon. And then, mm. um, and then, do you guys ever have to do that? Like, when you're doing your expeditions and you have to get from point A to point B, I mean, do you ever go across canyons and do that kind of stuff? Or are you always Rarely, on foot and then climbing? Th that kind of going across a rope, like I assume you're talking about like sliding across a rope to like get across a canyon. Is that what yeah, you Yeah, I wish did? I could have slid, slid, but I had to yeah. drag myself. Yeah, hand over hand. That normally is used to cross rivers or like sort of chasms. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, I mean, there are definitely places actually like so in Patagonia that I was just talking about to cross a bunch of the rivers there. There'll be a rope already stretched across it and you just get there and have to hand over hand across the rope. But... <sighs> 
you know, it just depends though. Because if you're the first person to ever get to a place like that, then, you know, equipping the rope, like setting it all up requires somebody to swim across the river with a rope on, you know, which is no easy feat either. And so typically you're only going to rig something like that, like to set up the rope if you're planning on commuting, you know, going there frequently back and forth or something. Mm -hmm. Because if you're only doing it once, it's easier just to swim across the river and, you know, not take a rope with you, you know, basically just get across at once. Be done with it. Yeah, which, um, which we've I've had to do a lot of in the past, like wading across rivers, waist deep, you know, like it's all pretty chilly. <laughs> oh, geez. I bet. I bet because you're like in the mountains where yeah. snow melts and yeah, exactly. the river, it's cold as shit and you have to deal with that. I mean, I'm curious about gear. I mean, I'm sure that gear makes such a difference. I was also curious about your hands in Antarctica and the fact that the granite is basically frozen. I would think, but like you can't, you never wear gloves, right? No. So actually in Antarctica, I did wear leather gloves quite a bit Uh um, just because the climbing, we were mostly sticking to climbing that was easy enough for us that, uh, that I could do with gloves on, Mm. you know, I don't know. I'm sure like, you know, for, for a racing analogy or something, I'm sure if you were driving at low enough speeds, you could drive with one hand or do what, you know what I mean? Like at a certain point, if the intensity isn't that high, you can kind of handle extra things like that. Yeah. And so the climbing that we were doing in Antarctica was like not technically that intense. And so, uh, I mostly climbed with leather gloves on to save my skin and, and to feel more comfortable. And then whenever I would get to the hard parts, you can basically like pull the glove off with one hand, you know, shove it into your jacket, climb for a bit. And then when you get somewhere else, you put your gloves back on. And with easy climbs like that, you know, referring to uneasy climb, are you using ropes at all? Yeah, yeah, we we were roped. I mean, the stuff with Antarctica is that we're doing first ascents of walls that have never been climbed before. And so you have no idea what you're going to run into. And then you also have to get back down. And, you know, I was describing this like these big wolf's teeth thing. So they're like these spires. And uh, it's not like there's an easy way to walk off the backside. You know, they're like these giant teeth sticking up. So we'd have to rappel back down. And so you kind of need the full kit. Like you need your hardware, you need your rope, you need everything with you. And also with Antarctica, when when we were in full sun, I mean, it's 24 hours of sunlight down there because uh, we were there for their summer. So when you're in the sun, it can be okay, you know, like comfort wise because uh, mm-hmm. there's no humidity. And so if you're in sunlight, like it feels okay. Yeah. But if you're climbing some feature and and you're going too slowly and the sun moves a little bit and now you're in the shade it's suddenly very chilly you know like when it gets shady in antarctica it is very cold and so you kind of need all the equipment with you just in case in case you have to retreat in case you have to like add some more layers or i don't know it's like it's not the kind of place where you want to be like free soloing sort of willy-nilly because like it's just it's too extreme basically did you learn a lot along the way? You're like, oh shit, I need all these, these certain things. I, I didn't know how much I needed this. Like, is there, is that how much, like what pieces of what, what articles mm. of clothing or what, you know, yeah, on, certain things you have, like don't get crappy ropes or don't get yeah, totally. crappy, you know, I, what do you put into the, you must put something into the, into the rock. Actually, most of the stuff you put in is removable. So the person yeah. who's going first puts it in and then the person going second takes it back out. And that way mm-hmm. you have all your equipment the whole time. Right, but, right. Um, but no, you're totally right that you have to be pretty dialed on, on the equipment though. uh, You basically learn, you know, each expedition. So I've gone to Patagonia, that, that picture right there, Uh, I've gone to Patagonia, I think four or five different expeditions now each time for about a month. And, um, on the first couple trips, I would have like a note on my phone 
with just tons of like, I should have brought this, I should have had this, like use a different brand of this piece of equipment. You know, basically you're constantly taking notes as to like what you should be doing differently, what could make things more comfortable, like what would be nicer, like how could you do it better? And then, you know, each expedition you go on, you just learn a little bit, you like tighten up your kit a little bit. But the thing is, you know, I mean, there are kind of two things. One is that when you're going somewhere, for me, like going to Antarctica where I've never been before, you know, you read a bit about it ahead of time. You read about other people's experiences so that you can get some sense of what they needed and what, what you should bring. But to some extent, when you're going into the unknown, you know, it's it's unknown. Like you just have to bring a bunch of stuff and hope that you're ready for it, you know, and then be ready to improvise. It's like, you know, it's. I mean, you just don't know. I mean, that's the nature of, of exploration. Um, capturing this all is probably one of the parts of the equipment. And so I'm wondering if you ever wear like equipment. I think you were trying to send me a video, like a virtual reality video of climbing. Hmm. Yeah. And I didn't actually, have the, I didn't have the, the, the oculars. Yeah. The headset. And, um, so are you doing some of the climbing videos like with yourself? Do you have GoPros? Do other people do it? Do you always have somebody recording something or do you sometimes just go on these and it's just, you know, up, up in the memory bank? I personally enjoy just going and doing my own climbing and it's just in the memory bank. And I've, I've done tons of, of things that way. Uh, I prefer to let other people document things, uh, mostly because I'm not any good at it. And I'd rather let people who actually are good at it, uh, you know, so I'd rather just let a professional videographer or cinematographer, somebody like document a, a climb. Like, you know, if you're going to do it, do it right. Like let somebody who's a professional capture it in, in a, in, in a way that actually makes it, that does it justice, you know, that actually looks good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I prefer not to climb with GoPros or do any of those kinds of things. That said though, I mean, I do like taking pictures of, of my climbing partner and stuff. You know, if it's just you and your partner climbing some big wall in a remote place, I mean, I often take my phone out and take pictures because if nothing else, just to show my family, you know, you go home and you're like, sure. and then look what we did. It was insane. You wouldn't believe, you know, I mean, I have all, I have all kinds of panoramas on my phone from Antarctica and it's just, it's just like any other tourist. I'm standing in some crazy sure. place, like holding my phone out and taking pictures. I'm like, this is insane. I can't wait to show my wife. By the way, they you know? will believe you. Like, you're not going to believe this. But like, yeah, yeah, they are going to believe you. Yeah. 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 But yeah, so I, I like documenting, but actually, I mean, you mentioned uh, the the VR thing. I actually just did this VR film this year, which is kind of a whole different type of documentation. And uh, like, have you filmed anything in VR? No. It's a uh, it's it's kind of the future. I think I found it. It's so immersive. I mean, if you ever get to see the film that we shot, it's like totally insane. I found it way more interesting because you know the thing with three sixty VR is like you're watching it through the goggles. But you can turn around and basically look behind you. You can look down. You can look up. And so, you know, if you imagine a, a free soloing film in VR, it's like in the center of the frame you see, you know, me climbing. But you can look down and see the bottom if you want. You can look up and see, you know, the sky. You can hear birds in the distance. You can turn around and just look at the mountains. I mean, it's like you can see the whole landscape. And so, wow. the film I just shot was um, kind of split between the Dolomites in Italy and and the Alps and uh, you know Chamonix in France. And so you know, if you've never been to those places, it's actually kind of an amazing way to see the landscape because you can look around from the summits of these peaks. It's like, it's it's really cool. I found it surprisingly cool. So how's that going to be packaged then? Are they going to be movies I, or? Yeah, no, I think it's just for free on Oculus. If, if you have a headset, you can just watch oh. it for free. I mean, it seems clear that it's sort of the future of, of entertainment and, and uh, you know, gaming and things like that, but it just hasn't quite arrived yet. You know, not enough people have headsets, like people aren't actually doing it that much. But I think when you do it, 
it's kind of an it's insane it's it's crazy the the vr stuff i do actually think has a place and I mean, it's just it's it's crazy it's really really cool that said i don't want to spend tons of my time on social media so you know it's all a bit of a bit of a balance mm. but you have social media somewhere mm-hmm. yeah i have the accounts i have a friend sort of deal with some of it for me and then from time to time i basically reinstall the app and like do something and then erase the app again um, but it's just better because that way i don't okay. find myself like well because otherwise i just get sucked into it you know it's like you like go to the bathroom and 20 minutes later you're like i've just been <laughs> looking at like weird things and you're just like why did i do that like is that is that a good use of my time like, wow that's that's fascinating when did you when did you develop that discipline or that awareness uh, sort of on and off over the last couple of years. I don't know. I mean, do you have all the apps on your phone? Like, do you actually just get sucked into the, like, do you I get, get sucked, sucked into Instagram. TikTok? Sure. Oh, that, I have is, Instagram that... and Twitter and I almost, I really don't do much on Twitter. It Things come out on Twitter, but I don't really use mm-hmm. it a ton. Yeah, that's, I'm kind of the same, but. Um, and then Instagram, it, it I do. It doesn't annoy you when you get sucked into that stuff? It does, but then it's interesting. And I, do I had, I had an experience maybe a year or two ago whenever Reels came out where I was like taking a dump and like Reels came out <laughs> on Instagram, you know, their version of, t- of TikTok. And I was right. like sitting on the toilet and I like got sucked into Reels where I was like, what is this? And then like, I just totally was like engrossed. And then by the time I got up, I was like, my legs had basically gone numb because <laughs> I've been sitting there for like half an hour. And I was like, and then I immediately erased the app because I was like, screw that. I was like, this is crazy. And I think part of it is because I personally have a bit of a, it's, it's partially personality where it's like when I do things, I go deep into them. And mm. it's like, you know, it's easy for me to get sucked into something and like to go hard. You know, like if I start watching a show, I can easily just watch the whole season in a single sitting or something and be like, OK, I did the thing today. Or same with reading a book in a single push and stuff like that. Like I just like I like going all the way. But so or like actually we just uh, made some some puzzles you know, over the holidays, you know, on the dining room table. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you lay out a puzzle and I will work on the puzzle until it's freaking done. A thousand pieces later. Yeah, like we did we did a thousand piece puzzle and two or three days you know and it's just like a, a fun you know it's like i'm into it but it's like the problem is that you know something like instagram or whatever else like hijacks that you know it's like you get into it and then you're like wait i've just spent my whole day like looking at weird shit that i don't care about that's because they develop it with special crack in it so that you get addicted <laughs> exactly exactly you know they have the yeah, game I mean, they have vegas gamers programming it yeah exactly exactly yeah, like I don't want to just universally condemn it because, you know, I think social media can be quite a useful tool for people for like finding community and whatever else. But I think that it's not necessarily good for me. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I some people are really they like and I follow some of them and I'm interested in what they post. You know, some people can talk to their phone as if it's a person and they're just like having a dialogue. And I'm like. I just can't do that. Like, I, yeah, you're like how do you do that? I, know, I can't do that. If I have to make a video, I'll make a video. I've started to think to myself, should I do an Instagram story when I have a podcast come out to kind of talk about it from my perspective for like a couple of slides worth? And then I, one came out today that was my like, you know, year end sort of health journey thing. And I was like, ah, whatever. <laughs> Even though my post made it seem like I was dying. Um, but yeah, I, I think my, it does what, suck you, you in. Huh? I said, were you dying? No, no. But I put the first picture is me with like tons of vials of blood and like a needle in my arm, getting it drawn, you know, and then there's another slide of that. And then, you know, so no, it's, it's just blood draws, but it's, it's, um, it probably seemed more dramatic than it really was. But, uh, social media is something you get sucked into. Actually, one of the best things I think that I ever did was about, 
I don't know, four years ago, maybe now I stopped watching the news. Um, <laughs> I still watch TV every now and again, for sure. And Dude, I'll watch a show, but I don't watch the news. I don't, I don't even, I've never owned a TV. What? That's an easy way to avoid all that stuff. Hold on a second. You used to live in a van down by the river. Yeah, but now I own a home and I don't own a television. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we watch shows on my computer, okay. but, um, but the thing is, yeah, also I'm, I'm pretty into downloading shows and stuff offline. Like I don't have any streaming services. I just sort of download things ahead of time and, but it makes you much more intentional in your media consumption because it's not like yeah. what's streaming and you just click on random shit. It's like, you know, if somebody has told me that I should watch something, like I'll, I'll download it and then, and then watch it. But it's like, there's no, there's no capacity to just get sucked into random things. But what have you gotten sucked into every now and again? If you were to list a few things that you're like, damn it. And one of them sounds like Instagram one time when you were sitting on the toilet. But other than that, what are a couple of things that you're like, ah, oh, man, that sucked me in? Oh, I mean, like when I was younger, I was way into gaming, you know, like as a, oh. as a teenager and stuff. Not like um, video games, but like computer games of various kinds. And I'd be like into it, you know, and I'm sort of like, I don't know, in, in some ways I'm glad that I am not younger because i feel like all the challenges are just even worse now because like having a phone in your pocket like it's really easy to install a game on your phone that just like totally hijacks everything in your brain that you love about like progress and you know improvement and like working on little things and like your game is constantly going it's like it's easy to get sucked into that kind of stuff and i'm like i don't know you know if i was a 13 year old right now as opposed to i'm 36 in instead you know it's like if i was 13 like i don't know if i would quite have the 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 willpower you know sort of the the motivation to avoid all these sort of pitfalls you know because even as an adult i find it pretty hard to to keep the apps off my phone and to like actually read a book as opposed to to playing some game you know whatever else i don't know it's like man it'd be hard if you were a kid it's true what are you gonna do with your kid then yeah Maybe. i don't know yeah it's a good question huh? yeah i don't know i mean i think that i'm hoping that the best way is just to to, to sort of show the correct path you know like i mean the not having a television not doing too much screen time that seems like the right thing and then i mean i spend so much of my personal time at the crag like at cliffs you know outdoors yeah. like going bouldering going to cliffs like going hiking doing all these kinds of things i mean i'm hoping that that by doing that kind of stuff with a kid it'll just kind of show a different path you know you don't have to tell them not to use your phone you just show them that there are actually more fun things to be doing in the real world that's fact um, I'm really curious about your reading because I know that you read a lot. Um, what are you reading right now? I just started this book. I'm not sure if it's breathe or breath, but do, breathe, you read the that? You one know, about yeah, mouth breathe. breathing. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, it's yellow book. mouth breathing. Well, mine's kind of whitish, but you know, it's a small, I don't know, it's paperback. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, breathe or breath. Yeah. But, uh, it's, it's interesting. I last year, um, some friends had told me about it and then I listened to some podcasting about it and I was like, oh, this is interesting, but now I'm actually reading the book. And, uh, I, I don't know. I'm only halfway through. I've been, uh, I've been sleeping with my mouth tape shut though. You know, I've nothing else. I'm basically, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm interested and curious and, and, you know, trying some things from what it. does it say that's so helpful by doing that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you have to read the book and it, and it's written by a journalist. It's not like a scientific uh, you know, it's not like a paper or something. Oh. I mean, it's sort of like a, it's like a journalist's interesting voyage through, you know, pulmonary issues. And so, um, oh. I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll, it's a we'll famous see. book. It's a, like tons of people have read that book. It's yeah, on yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it was actually right here to see it, but I can, I know it's over there on my bookshelf. Yeah. 
yeah, it was uh, it was given to my father-in-law for Christmas, and then I basically took it uh, to read it before him because I was like, oh, I'm interested in this. I'll I'll finish in a couple of days, hopefully. What are you most interested in reading about? Oh, I mostly read. I read a lot of environmental nonfiction, but mm. uh, basically just like things about climate, about the environment, just whatever else. Um, I mean, I have a I have a nonprofit that uh, supports solar projects around the world, basically like mm-hmm. environmental nonprofit, mm-hmm. and so that kind of I found it that sort of as a result of a lot of different reading. And I mean, we've been talking about the expeditions and travel and all that. I mean, it's hard not to go on trips like that and and feel like you should be doing something useful. I feel like there's a part of me that's like, obviously climate change is happening. And then there's another part of me that's like, I've watched videos where climate change happens on a macro level in ebbs and flows in history of the world. And like, what if you're on a rise? Does that, is that, is that part of it? Um, then there's other people that don't think it's happening at all, but what is, yeah, I mean, in you your should... experience, like what is the reality of it from your perspective? Well, it's not even from my perspective. I, I think this is an example where you can say there is an objective reality. I mean, it's like, yeah, like the climate is changing. I mean, it's just, you know, how quickly to what extent it's like yeah scientists still quibble over some details but it's like climate change is reality right. and and it's and it's happening you know the whole macro scale stuff basically doesn't apply to the scale of change that we're experiencing Got it. i mean that's the kind of thing i mean what's crazy i mean i don't know i mean i guess you know for for your line of work you're not like in nature quite as much but um dude i'm killing nature i killed yeah, nature. yeah that's true i you burned are, fuel are. as fast as i can the more fuel i burned the faster i went so i was not in the uh most conscientious form of uh form of work yeah totally totally well you know never never too late to uh to, to change that but well i was gonna say i mean so for me over the course of of my life you know i can physically see how forests have changed in california how glaciers have receded you know it's like or you know i was talking about patagonia i've done four or five expeditions there just in the last six years you know some of the glaciers have receded enough that you now hike in different ways to the mountains you know like you used to hike around the south side of the lake now you hike around the north side of the lake because the lake is twice as big because the glaciers receded so much you know and so when you see that kind of change happening at that kind of scale you know because you know, it's easy to be like, oh, macro changes, you know, like Yosemite used to be glaciated, and then the glaciers retreated. And you're like, yeah, they did over 1000s of years, not over the course of one human lifespan. You know, basically, it's like if you can physically see change yourself. It's like, you know, that that the timeline is totally out of control. Mm. You know, it's like, that's kind of, that's why I, f- I find it surprising that there's so much climate denial. And, and actually, I mean, more so in the US than than the rest of the world. But it's surprising because even if you're like the most staunch climate denier, it's like you can see that the the flowers in your garden bloom at different times than they did when you were a kid. Or like I'm from the Central Valley in California. And like when I grew up, like Thule fog, like there's thick fog that like blankets the whole valley. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's a thing. You know, there used to be like 100 car pileups all the time. It's like thick fog all the time mm-hmm. in the Central Valley. And now that happens like maybe once a winter, you know, enough to be like, oh, yeah, there was fog one day. But it's not like all winter the way. And, you know, I'm not even that old. And I'm kind of like, it surprises me that so many like older conservative folks can like argue against climate change in a weird way. Because you're like, you know, you can see this is totally different. You know, yeah. like wildfire season in California is like completely different scale than it was even 10 or 20 years ago. Right. And right. and like, you know, you can argue the causes about, you know, forest management and arson and whatever else you want to call it. But the results are totally insane. You know what I mean? It's like, like the intensity of fires is 
like that's not a product of arson you know what i mean it's not like people are setting more fires now than were 10 years ago like human Mm -hmm. activity is like relatively unchanged it's just that the intensities are way higher because the forests are drier and you know i mean there's I don't know, I could ramble about this like in So what's the contributing? But. I mean, I think, you know, what I love is like what what can I do, right? So, I mean, I think everybody kind of, you know, can think about it from a practical standpoint. But what are what are the things that need to be done to really make a difference? And, you know, I mean, I feel like me driving a you know, a car a car that doesn't burn gasoline and then battery powered is an option, but maybe it's the big, you know, factory down the road that is like, you know, my car is a whisper on the wind compared to something like that. So like, what are the, what are the big things that are really going to move the needle? Well, that's, I mean, that's the challenge. I mean, there's always the, the sort of contrast between personal lifestyle changes versus policy sort of issues. Right. Um, I mean, I think that in the U S there's always been a focus on personal change. We're like, what should you be doing? Like you should, you know, drive green, like go electric or go, you know, drive a hybrid or things like that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you should turn down your thermostat, things like that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, those are all, or like eat less meat. is an obvious thing. Like go vegetarian or, you know, go, you know, mostly plant-based, whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, basically like limit your impact Mm -hmm. and, that all makes sense. And I think, you know, people should at least think about those things and do what they can. But the most important things are the policy things. I mean, like voting, you know, like making sure that that the government is steering the ship in the right direction, basically. Um, Because realistically, you know, it's like you can make certain lifestyle choices. But like, if government ordinances is such that there are no more new gas hookups in your county you know it's like basically if new homes aren't built with natural gas hookups then lo and behold nobody's burning natural gas and instead they're using electric stoves and and basically that's way cleaner overall and so you know things like that it's like i think it's important that that the default choices get greener you know it's like I, I actually, I personally sort of don't like the putting the onus on on individual action because the reality is that most people in the U.S. like don't have the bandwidth and the energy and or, or even the finances to like make the green choice all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like I think what needs to be done is is that the the default choices need to be made a little bit greener. You know, so like building codes, you know, like slightly denser uh, communities with public transportation, let's say, or like you know, I mean, if new homes are required to be net zero so like produce their own power so they have solar they don't have gas hookups things like that it's like those are kind of obvious like relatively easy things that are put into code yeah that wind up making an individual's life much much greener without them actually having to put any effort into it right but i think that probably i'm gonna guess the snag that comes along with that is that it's probably gonna cost some money you know like probably some of that some some of that though is the upfront cost is a little bit higher, but then the life cycle cost is much lower. You know, mm. the thing with solar and stuff like that, it's like, yeah, it costs a little bit more ahead of time, but then you don't have a utility bill, let's say. Yeah. And so, you know, over the over the lifetime of ownership, it's actually you save quite a bit of money, but it's just, you know, there's a higher hurdle to clear. But that's where that's where smart policy decisions need to come in. You know, yeah. it's like that's where there's a place for government and like tax breaks and things like that. And you know, because those are the kinds of things where I'm like, it's not fundamentally harder to build, you know, like not having gas hookups, like can be cheaper, actually. I mean, you know, when you put a new natural gas hookup into a building, it costs like $1,500 to like hook it up to the to the meter and everything. It's like, it's not fundamentally more expensive. It's just that it's slightly different and people aren't used to doing it that way. And, you're, you know, it's just not the status quo for whatever reason. Yeah. What are the best books that you've read about this, Ted? Oh, my God. I've, I don't even know. I have like... 
I don't know, so many. Um, what one and, got and actually, you hooked? Like, what was the one that got you hooked? You know, what one did you read? And you're like, holy shit, I have to do something. Well, the the very first sort of environmentally book, uh, and actually, it's funny, I don't even totally remember what's in the book anymore, but uh, <laughs> it was this book, uh, E-Earth. It's like Earth with an extra A in it. Uh-huh. And it was a Bill McKibben book. Bill McKibben is like a really renowned environmental activist who's like worked with 350.org a bunch. And um, he's written a ton of books about the environment in different ways. But um, but basically, the, the premise of E-Earth was that we're already living on an Earth that isn't the Earth that we remember from childhood, which is kind of what I was actually just talking about, where like when my grandparents talked about what the world is like, like we don't live in that world anymore. Like there are already, you know, more than 100 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, more than there were when our grandparents were kids. It's like, and that literally changes every aspect of the earth, you know, like the ocean is more acidic, which means that the the shellfish like mollusks and things make more brittle shells and like eggs don't form in the same way. It's like, Mm. we've literally changed every ecosystem on earth already. And, you know, like that's, that's just not the earth that we think of when we think about earth. It's it's all pretty freaking heavy, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's the yeah, but it's real. It, I like, mean, it's oh. reality. It's stuff that we're dealing with. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think also about regenerative farming, and I think about um, you know hearing from a few different people that I've interviewed that we have sixty or seventy harvests left in our soil, and you know the, we're just treating our planet pretty crappy. And you know, regenerative farming, I think, is one of those things too that is you know more efficient over time. But you know, you, totally. have, to learn, you have to learn how to do it. And that to me is another example of like policy things where you're like, why isn't that the default? You know, it's like, why not just be like, like everything should be that way. You're like, it's a, if it's a smarter way to do it and it's better long term, it's like, why not just do that? You know, it's like, it's easy to imagine a world that's like, that's better in a lot of ways. And you're like, why not implement some of those things? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that we can all do whatever we can do because at the end of the day, if everyone is kind of if, of the mindset that we take care of this planet in whatever way that you feel like is a is a good way, then some of those people that are making those new decisions are also making the decisions on policies, right? Like if everyone does it, those people are also decision makers. And as everyone becomes more conscientious, then it would you'd imagine that it would affect their decisions um, business wise. Yeah, the, the challenge, though, is that whether or not that affects change at the scale necessary to avoid the worst climate impacts, you know, because I, I kind of agree. We're like, yeah, you know, people are slowly changing and it's slowly improving. Each generation is a little bit better. But the challenge is that if, you know, the world warms to to four degrees Celsius, the ice caps both melt, you know, sea level rises enough to wipe out, you know, I mean, you know, most of the big population centers on Earth are on the coast. It's like if sea yeah. level goes up even a little bit, that obliterates all the biggest cities on Earth. Uh, you know, it uh, b- basically some changes need to happen relatively quickly. And, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of gradual like generational change is not quick enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the I don't know. I read I read a pretty depressing book, which um, which I'm blanking on the name of, uh, but uh, it might come back to me. But um, but it was basically sort of looking at an Earth in in like 2050 that's in sort of a gradual state of decline overall, and and it's sort of I hadn't really thought about it, you know, because we've both grown up in worlds that you know there's constant economic expansion, like quality of living is constantly improving, people yeah. are constantly slightly richer, you know, it's easier to get basic goods like food costs less than I mean, even though the price yeah. is higher, it's actually it's a smaller percentage of our income than it was at previously in life. Like basically, life has been getting easier for most of our lives. Yeah, and that's just and it's 
easy to see that by 2050 that might not be the case because a certain amount of GDP will be going to dealing with like mega fires and like other climate disasters and things. And you're sort of starting to see that in California, you know, where it's like two of the biggest fires on record were this summer, the first two fires to bridge across, uh, across the Sierra. I mean, it's, it's like kind of crazy. It's like unprecedented levels of natural disaster. And like, as that, as it takes more and more human wealth to manage those kinds of things, you know, that's basically taking away from what could be the quality of our lives, Mm. you know, and you're sort of like, oh, it's kind of grim to think that my kid's generation might be living in a state of like barely making ends meet slash gradual economic decline. Yeah. Yeah. That's scary stuff. Um, Yeah. That's interesting. I went to Glacier. Well, I guess it was 2020. um, And just by the name itself, Glacier yeah. National Park. <laughs> um, so I was really curious, like with all this talk, how does it how does it work with glaciers? Like I I'm seeing this landscape, huge mountains, it's beautiful, right? Like it's it's not ice, it's real like grass and trees and all these things. And so we were all talking, and I'm like, I don't really understand how this whole glacier thing works. And so the glaciers are always receding and always melting right is that the that is that the truth is that real uh Actually? no i mean well no. not necessarily because otherwise they would retreat to nothingness i mean that's the whole thing like glacier national park won't have any glaciers by 2050 or or by 2100 or whatever it is so what but, happens to the terrain well then it just becomes dry you know then like some of the stream beds dry up the mm. some of the forests die off i mean you know it just depends on the the specifics of it but no i mean in general a glacier is a permanent snow field like a permanent ice field basically it's like compacted snow and so you know glaciers are formed because there's enough annual snowfall that basically compacts down and becomes permanent ice that's like slowly flowing downhill but so uh you know if they're if it's melting faster than the snow is accumulating on it then it slowly retreats to nothingness and that's what we're seeing on most of the glaciers on earth right now got it so they'll it'll dry out and essentially the the climate in that area will just be different, right? There won't be. Yeah, it'll just be different. And that's actually something that's pretty fucked up. Are, are we allowed to curse? Absolutely. But, um, yeah, yeah. So like um, somewhere like the Himalaya, like the highest mountain range on earth in say Nepal and Northern India and China, a lot of the the communities there are fed by, by, by glaciers. You know, it's like basically they're streams coming off glaciers, providing drinking water for, mm. I mean, well, you think India and China are the two most populous countries on earth. You know, that's like, what that's a third or half of humanity yeah it's like a third of humanity living off of of that kind of 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 runoff you know i mean yeah and so when when snow melt like when snowfields disappear when glaciers disappear you wind up with much more erratic supply for that kind of thing you know you can't grow crops the same way it's like instead of having a constant flow of water coming down you wind up having a torrent of water come down when it rains and then nothing the rest of the year which is like not that helpful for agriculture because it's either a flash flood or it's nothing. It's like you can't really grow crops that way. And so, you know, I mean, glaciers like form the backbone of, of the, the hydrology cycle, you know, like basically the water cycle for like big parts of the world are, are sort of anchored by glaciers. And it's like wow. as they disappear, everybody's fucked. Wow. So then we have to go find another planet. Well, no, I mean, then you do desalinization. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of like technical fixes and ways to, you know, it's like, yeah, there are ways to try to mitigate that, but it costs a ton of money. It's a ton of effort. Like, you know, poor like subsistence farmers, like people in in, like rural Nepal can't afford those kinds of fixes and they just basically go hungry. I mean, that's the unfair thing about climate change is that 
you know, it's basically the poorest people on earth that suffer the most from it. You know, it's mm-hmm. like for those of us living in like suburban America, you know, it's like, yeah, we notice the air quality being worse in the summer because of the wildfires in the West. And it's like, we might notice water scarcity things, but overall we're not going to suffer in the way that, that, but you know, right now there are a billion people on earth without access to power, which is some of the work that my foundation works on. And it's like those billion people are the people who suffer when the climate changes. Like if it doesn't rain, their crops don't grow and they die. And that's Mm. fucked up. Where do you see your, you know, your career going? Because at some point in time, I mean, what's the, what's the sort of the shelf life of a climber's life? And I'm sure, right, like you could be 70 and climb some easy stuff, right? But, you know, at some point in time, probably the, the climbing every tooth, of the wolf's yeah. mouth in Antarctica is probably going to to come to an end at some point in time, and and when do you when does that naturally usually happen, and then what is the next progression right now for you that you're super passionate about that you could see yourself um, spending a lot of your time on? Yeah, so climbing has slightly more longevity than most professional sports, just because it's pretty low impact on your body. So, uh, so unlike professional football, let's say, where you're just getting hammered the whole time, um, you know, or, or really, I mean, professional basketball or, or like tennis, even, you know, take tremendous toll on your body. Climbing takes much less of a toll on your body. So you can kind of climb at an elite level, probably into your forties and fifties. And then you can probably still contribute to contribute to the climbing world enough to be a professional climber, like well into your fifties or sixties by by sort of spearheading expeditions, putting up new routes, you know, mentoring young mm-hmm. climbers, things like that. Um, so you can be a professional for a long time. I do think that I personally will probably transition to other things at some point. I mean, like this um, this upcoming summer, I'm doing a National Geographic television uh, series in Greenland that's kind of half climbing adventure, half climate change, climate science uh, around glaciology and mm. Um, so it's like kind of an interesting way to combine, you know, some of my passions and, and also do a climbing expedition that feels slightly more useful. Cause like, if you're going to go and climb in one of these areas, you may as well be, be talking about the issues that really matter, which in this case is the retreating Greenland ice sheet. Um, so I don't know, I wouldn't be surprised if I do more projects like that where it's like, yeah, I'm climbing, I'm adventuring, I'm doing the things that, that I'm good at, but I'm trying to do them in a way that's, that's slightly more useful or like, you know. We'll see. I mean, the same with work through the foundation. It's like the Hunnell Foundation, uh, I don't know, it just feels a lot more useful than climbing in a way. It's like, you know, today I went to the gym and I trained and I like, I hit my numbers, you know, I did the things that I was trying to do in terms of like lifting weight and like physically pushing myself. And you're like, does that matter at all? And I I wouldn't be surprised if having a kid uh, sort of exacerbates that even more where I'm like, does it freaking matter if I manage to do my project at the gym? Like, who cares? You know, compared to to trying to shape the world that my daughter will grow up in. Like that seems, you know, climbing seems a little less significant than, than focusing on the bigger issues. You're really self-aware like you, I mean, I I don't know if it's all the time you have by yourself, you know, (laughs) quiet, you know, climbing and just, you know, sleeping under the stars and I don't know, but where does that come from? I don't know. No, no. I mean, you read a lot of books, spend a lot of time sitting and, you know, climbing, you know, but I mean, I was also raised, by, both my parents are professors, uh, you know, I've got like a bit of a academic back, even though I dropped out of school and to go live in a car and go climbing all the time. But, you know, I mean, who knows, like I wouldn't attribute it to anything in particular. I just, I'm just interested in this kind of stuff. But, and, and as, as you know, I mean, when you do enough interviews, you do think about issues a lot more and you do it, you know, it does, 
it helps shape your opinions in a way that's actually pretty useful for you. I always have described interviews as being almost like therapy, yeah. like live therapy where you're trying to sound like you've got it together, trying to compose some kind of an intellectual answer as if you've thought about it. And, but what happens in the process is that you do think about it and they mm -hmm. do come up with your answers. And, um, I've always thought that interviews are a really therapeutic process. Do you, do you think that's the best strategy? And, and I ask because, uh, so I have some friends who are like Hollywood actor type folks who are strongly opposed to that strategy. They're like, they're basically like interviews are not the place for you to do your therapy. <laughs> you know, they're sort of like interviews are where you, you stay on brand, you deliver your message, you know, you talk about it. And I've always, I've always ignored that. You know, I'm like, I think that's stupid because I prefer, you know, when somebody asks me a question, I'd rather just think about it and then give an honest answer, r regardless of whether it's, you know, on message or w whatever. It's like, but it also makes it way easier to do interviews that way because you know, when somebody asks you, you just think about it and you answer. You don't have to, you know, think about whether or not it's the right strategy. You just answer. There's no problem. But yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, you never have to stay on message. You just always answer honestly, which which is what I've always been into. But you know, do you think that do you think that's the best way? I'm. I do. I totally do because I think that when we when we're communicating from our truth and what really, what we're really thinking and feeling. And we answer the question, honestly, like, how are you doing today? Like, I'm good. It's like, um, actually, you know, I've kind of like, I had a, you know, something happened this morning and then, you know, so I'm kind of, you know, I'm a little, you know, like answer the question. I mean, mm -hmm. that's obviously quite a simple one, but I think there's a lot of people, and especially when we're talking about the racing community where it's like, Oh, you know, the, the go daddy Chevrolet today did, you know, had a good race and my pit crew was good. You know, I mean, there's just so many crappy answers that you get. And I think that part of what's made me popular is that I answer the questions honestly, and I give my, and I give the real answer. I don't sugarcoat huh. it and there's emotion in it and there's truth in it. And I think that there's a frequency. I think there's an energy in truth. And I think that resonates with the viewer or the listener in a way that is kind of hard to quantify yeah. or see, but it can be felt. So I totally think that it's the right thing to do. Um, and it's not like I'm airing dirty laundry or, you know, like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, divulging uh, private information that I shouldn't. It's just really about putting some thought to the questions that's being answered and are being asked so that your answers can be interesting. Totally. Totally. I know so, so much of uh, sports interviews are like, you know, I just did my best for the team today and the team really came through and you're kind of like, did you say anything? Like, you know, like, what do you actually think about it? Uh, yeah. Do you watch other sports? Uh, yeah, not so much live, but but yeah, I mean, um, I, I grew up, my family liked football, so I like, I, I at least know football okay. And I, I like watch sports highlights and I don't know, I've taken to watching uh, like every once in a while when I'm like in a hotel or something somewhere, I'll like watch a whole season worth of NFL, NFL highlights, you know, like on YouTube <laughs> okay. in little like 10 minute, you know, it's like two hours later, you're like, I watched the whole playoffs like in little 10 minute because the NFL itself releases little 10 minute highlight things for each game. And so it's kind of a nice way to to see you know, like a whole freaking, yeah. It's like the whole division, like conference. I don't know. Totally. Well, yeah. I suppose you're, you're probably, you're outside in nature during the day when it's happening. And then yeah. you, well, and, and you, I have no television and you have no so, television. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the idea of watching the full game, I'm sort of like, man, three or four hours to see something that, I mean, the amount of time in commercials and people just walking back and forth to and from the field, you're like, dude, this is pretty slow. There's like six or eight good highlights. Yeah, exactly. Just... Exactly. 
Like I, I love watching other sports for the athleticism and like seeing human performance. Like I like seeing other athletes do what they do and do it well. But realistically, in in like a three or four hour game, you know, there's only five minutes of incredible. Okay, actually, I don't want to diminish it too much because I mean, obviously, people are trying hard the whole time, but you only see elite performance happen, you know, a few times per game. Yeah. Is there a sport that you think is the most similar to climbing as far as like uh, physicality, like what what's required physically of you or even mentally like and maybe they're different. Maybe there are different sports that you think that they that are more of an, a better a better analogy. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I bet gymnastics is pretty similar uh, in terms yeah. of physicality and, and like range of movement and, and you know, executing routines and things like that. Um, but it's probably not the best analogy either. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, climbing is pretty singular. That's why I like it. So mentally, much. mentally, when you're climbing, how does it ha- ha- describe what that's like? Oh, it depends. Um I mean, so if you're doing something that you've rehearsed quite a bit in the past that you've practiced a lot that you've worked on as a climb, then mentally it can be uh, pretty empty. You know, you can just be executing. On the other hand, if you're doing a first ascent and so like if you're on expedition doing a new route in Antarctica, then you're thinking about quite a lot the whole time. You're like mm. evaluating the conditions of the rock. You're thinking about conditions. You're thinking about your gear. You're evaluating safety. You're like thinking about all kinds of stuff to try to mitigate risk and, and you know, survive the whole experience. Um And so, you know, I mean, climbing spans from like this incredibly thoughtful, like chess game to this incredibly Zen execution of a physical routine that you have, you know, like muscle memory style that you have totally dialed. Actually, I mean, with racing, is it kind of more on the the Zen execution end of it where it's like you're not thinking about stuff, you're just doing everything, I assume. It's very reactive. I mean, that's why experience pays off in racing is because you can't plan it, you can't execute it. You've got, you know... 40 loose cannons out there and everybody's got their own plan and everything happens differently and the conditions are different and the car is different and the pit strategy is different and you know, it's all kinds of stuff. So you, you just have to, it's, it's really flow. Actually, I had a Buddhist monk tell me that, um, it was probably like my moving meditation. Mm, mm. Yeah. That's the thing is that climbing can definitely be like that as well. I was wondering, but not always, but like, but if you were driving at like a slightly lower intensity, but over an incredibly long amount of time, like if you're doing like the, what is it? The Paris Dakar or something like some thousand. Yeah. There's like the 24 hours the of Le Mans and there's the 24 yeah, exactly. hours of Daytona. And- or, um, or, or actually probably a better example though, would be like the Baja 1000 or something probably sure. where you're thinking more logistics. Like what if my motorbike breaks sure. down and I have to like, you know, how do I fix my wheel and things like that? Like that's kind of the expedition end of climbing where you're like thinking about stuff the whole time it's like you still have a little bit of that zen state of like moving meditation but you also just have so many extra layers on it that you're just like i hope my bike doesn't break i hope i'm taking the right path like am i even on the track like you know have i seen any other racers in the last half an hour like am i just driving into the desert by accident you know what i mean like you're like is my trajectory one foot off and now 70 yeah yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) exactly whoops does um do you do you i mean do you do get negative thoughts when you're climbing Oh, you can. I mean, yeah, you certainly can. And, and, and if it starts to go sideways, it can certainly spiral into a dark place. I mean, that's one of those things like fear begets more fear in a way, you know, it's like if you start to second guess and you hesitate and then, you know, it's easy for that to all spiral into, into a disaster basically where you're like, I'm getting scared. And then you start to sweat more. And then you're like, no, I'm definitely going to fall off because I'm like sweaty and gripped and I'm pulling too tight, which means I'm getting fatigued too quickly. And then you're like, oh my God. And then you sort of like, you can't think reasonably because it's all falling apart. It's like, yeah. What do you tell yourself? 
to chill the fuck out. Is, <laughs> no, I, mean, know, I mean, seriously, you might even just say that. Like, I mean, there might be some mantra you have where it might be chill the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it, it depends because I mean, to me, there's always is that fear founded or unfounded? It's like because sometimes you're spiraling into into deep, deep fear but it makes sense because you actually are in an incredibly dangerous situation and things are actually going sideways. Like it did just start to snow and the holds are getting wet and you're, you are actually fucked. And then, and then, I mean, you still have to pull yourself together and, and try to recover in some way, but there's, there's sometimes when your, your brain sort of spirals away from itself and you get really scared for no real reason. Like you have a rope on, you're clipped into gear, everything is totally safe, but for some reason you're just still scared. And in those moments, you can just really just take that deep breath and be like, suck it up. Here we go. And just kind of like muscle through it a little bit. Do you? But there are a lot of, I mean, yeah, yeah, sometimes you do. And, and you probably should, because if, if that fear is unfounded, like if you're not actually in danger, then you probably should just muscle through it and move on. But the, you think that's the, intuition maybe. What, what do you mean? You know, just like something, something else kind of giving you this message and like, Hey, you know, Alex, um, it's not a good time. And in the back of your mind is the sort of like that, that little voice that's saying something doesn't feel right. No, I, I don't think, I mean, I know what you're saying and there probably are moments like that in climbing, but, um, but it's pretty common that, that climbers, uh, I mean, definitely like recreational climbers, but even like a elite, you know, professional climbers will kind of get slightly scared for no reason, you know, where it's like, you're just a little ways above your last bolt. So you're looking at taking, you know, a 10 foot fall or something, which is totally fine. The rope catches you and it's all safe and gentle mm -hmm. and like that's normal and fine. But it's easy to be in that position and be like, oh, this feels like kind of scary for like no real reason. And like those are the times where you just have to suppress the fear and push through. The challenge is knowing when you shouldn't just suppress it and push through because sometimes you are, are actually looking at a dangerous situation and you shouldn't push on. So what happened when you in the movie, when you went to go free solo the El Capitan and then you came back? Like what happened that made you turn around? Well, basically, I got all gripped. I was I was I was I felt uncomfortable. I was scared. And in that case, you know, I maybe could have just pushed through and it maybe would have been OK. But it was somewhat justified because I would sprained one of my ankles uh, earlier. And so it was quite swollen. So it didn't fit in the shoe. So. I couldn't feel my toes that well. It's like basically it was too cold and my foot was too swollen. So it's like hard to know that your foothold is that you're putting your foot on the right foothold when you can't really feel it. And so, you know, and you're about to try the most brave thing that a humans, you know, one of the most brave things humans ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's why I didn't do it. You know, because basically I got up there and I was like, the thing is, though, it's like I have tons of experience climbing with numb toes. I mean, you know, when it's cold, your feet go numb and you climb anyway, and it's fine. It's just that do you really want to risk your life to that when you're not totally sure and you're coming over an injury? You're like, ah, you know, anyway, basically, I got in that situation was like, I don't feel comfortable with this. And so I gave up on it. And then I came back the next season when I was healed and it was better conditions and everything about it was I was better prepared. And uh, and then it felt totally comfortable when I did. it. So what was the gap time wise between that? that effort that try and then the, the one you did uh the failed attempt was in november which is part of the reason it was cold because it's like coming into winter in the sierra mm -hmm. and then the successful climb was in june so it was like six months later got it or seven months i guess but. what do you think that um you know what do you think is if we're being philosophical i have been has been the greatest lesson that climbing's taught you i don't know i don't know it means probably some life lessons around effort you know like putting in the time 
like working for the things that you care about. I don't know. Is that a life lesson? But like, yeah. like embracing the grind, you know, just like loving the process and just like doing the thing all the time yeah. and like not being too results oriented, you know, just like letting the results come as, as a rule as a product of the grind you know it's like when you love just like doing the thing day in and day out every once in a while you're gonna have moments of greatness you know it's like like if you do you know i've been climbing full-time for like since i was a kid but so i've been climbing you know maybe five days a week for 25 years and at a certain point it's a freaking odds game you know it's like if you climb enough days you're bound to do something good every once in a while, you know? That's I was kinda... thinking of the bad. I was yeah, thinking but, of the but bad. The good I was too, like, the... can you stop climbing now so that you can go do all the other things that you want to do? Let's not risk no, no, it for the biscuit. No, no, it's more the good things. It's like, you know, it's like, man, if you climb enough, you're you're bound to do something impressive every once in a while. Is there anything impressive left on the list? Like, is there yeah, anything yeah, sure. where you're like, man, before I close out my climbing career at this level, at the elite level, there is like these are the ch- these are the boxes to check these are the bucket list items in my career still it's it's tough it's a little bit of diminishing returns at this point because nothing is going to be as cool as el cap and it's yeah. and it's like harder and harder work for me um partially because i'm getting older I, I would assume but um but also just because i'm already close to my limits you know it's like basically i've i've, I've put a lot of effort into climbing for a long time so it's not that easy for me to improve at this point but um you know, I've gotten like at least close to my physical limits, but no, I don't know. There are a few things like I'd like to climb harder grades. Like climbing is, is graded by certain numbers. Um, I've never climbed 515. It's like a certain number. Um, I'd like to get there. I'm like kind of close. We'll, we'll see. I think that, um, that fatherhood is a good opportunity to, to pursue that because, um, for me climbing at that grade requires sort of a structured training pro. Like it requires, uh, a degree of, of, of structure in my life. And I think having what's a kid the difference, but what's, what's kind of the, what's the difference with a five fifteen is <clears throat> it's just harder. It's like smaller holds further apart, you know, more continuous, like basically more physically demanding. Um, but it's just, it's just hard. It's, it's the kind of thing for a non climber, you would look at a root of that grade and it would look like a blank sheer wall. You know, you'd be like, that's a wall of glass. That's impossible. But you know, obviously it is possible, but you know, I don't know. So, so climbing harder grades and then there are a handful of other things. Like there are some other routes in different parts of the world and, and things. And, and like the, the VR film that I did last year is like a cool opportunity to like share climbing in a different way that I actually think is pretty freaking cool. And, and to do, and for that film, I sold it a couple routes in Europe that hadn't been done before. And so it's like a fun, you know, I'm like, I'm doing something that that's still meaningful for climbing. It's like new, it hasn't been done before. It's cool. And it's being shared in an interesting new way. I'm like, you know, that's still fun yeah. for me but it's it's not never going to be the film free solo you know what, what about I mean? making like a video game what about a video game out of climbing <laughs> i don't know i don't think i don't think that's my calling you don't I, think, I so? think i think well i think that no video game would be nearly as cool as doing the thing itself and well, like, duh i mean racing games yeah. suck too so oh that's true that's true but racing games are so the thing about racing is you can't really just go and do it the thing with climbing gyms is that like any major city in the world now has climbing gyms where you can do the thing at whatever level you want and it's really freaking fun and really good but yeah. like you can't really go race like you can't get a full race experience in any city like anywhere can you not really i mean you can go you can do like fun carts like go karts yeah i've gone golf karting and i found it i found it a little <laughs> scarier than i sort of expect i thought i was gonna be like kind of good at it and i was like kind of bad at it and found it kind of scary and i was like that's slightly <laughs> embarrassing 
I was like, turns out I'm not really suited to the like really fast sort of like, I don't know. It all felt kind of intense. A little more calculated. Does anyone yeah. ever, does anyone ever dare you to do anything? Does the like, I don't know, like maybe it's, I don't know if it's a regular person or your climbing friends, but does anyone go jump out of the car and go climb that right now? A little bit, not, not so much like that, but yeah, like uh, with climbers, you know, rope swings and things like that, like fun little adventure things. Uh, Has that yeah, ever ended poorly? Not too poorly. <laughs> like, I had I had a friend with a rope swing be like, oh, you, you like go from a certain point. And I was like, got up to the certain point was like, are you sure? It doesn't seem like it, it'll it'll work. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, it's fine. And then I was like, okay. And so he was like, I'm sure. So I went and I basically just like augured through these bushes and like, I like <laughs> tore down this mountainside, like through the bushes all like, ah, you know, thankfully it didn't hit the ground, but just like got all shredded in the bushes. And then when I was done, he was like, oh yeah, I guess you're supposed to go from a little higher. And I was like, yeah, no shit. Oh my <laughs> like, God. Almost hit the ground. All right. Well, will you please be careful? Try not to get yourself hurt. Don't do more rope swings and um good luck with the baby and congratulations on on that that's going to be i can't wait to see you at some other speaking engagement that we meet at yeah, somewhere exactly. along the way exactly. and but then i'll hear be what it's like. like presumably that'll uh, that'll mean i'll be more you know mature and responsible and all those kinds of things but we'll see yeah. now nah, we just we never really grow up i mean isn't that what you i'm 39 you're 36 like yeah. You, you know, when you see your parents at that age, when you're young, you think that's old, but now we're here. And yeah, you realize that you still have no idea what's going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. You still have no idea what's going on. And you still want to do kind of stupid stuff every now and again. You just have to pay a bigger price. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, All we'll right. see. We'll see. Well, congrats on a crazy, crazy life. And yeah, um, almost no one will ever be able to relate to it. But maybe we can through your VR. Ah. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I do think it's a good way to experience soloing. I, th I think you'll be impressed if you get to try it. I I guarantee you'll enjoy the whole. You'll be like, this is crazy. I like it. Kind of blew my mind, and and I have a high standard for that kind of thing. I was yeah. like, damn. But, yeah. But anyway, no, it's been it's been a p pleasure chatting. Sorry, I went so deep on environmental things, but I like, asked. I, I start I was... to rant about things, and I I just I I can't stop. Normally, you don't go too deep into that kind of stuff because you just never know. Knowledge is power. And you've read a ton of books and you're engaged personally and physically with it. And you have a lot to say and people should listen. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.